0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the dominant players in OPEC+, Plus, Saudi Arabia and Russia, agreeing to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day, which will drive up the price of gas just before the midterm elections. Clearly, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the de facto Saudi leader, and Putin have increasingly close ties And it is no secret MBS admires Putin, who he sees as a role model, at the same time despising Biden and wanting to help Trump return to the White House, which is a goal Putin also shares. Joining us is John Hoffman, a PhD candidate at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitical and political Islam. His work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cypher Brief, and Foreign Policy magazine. And he has an article at the National Interest, the Abram Accords and the Imposed Middle East Order. We'll discuss the imperative for the United States to assert its considerable leverage over Saudi Arabia and the need for Biden to fire all of his Middle East advisers who continue to believe that investing in autocrats is the best way to guarantee security in the Middle East. Then we'll examine the need to update our thinking about nuclear weapons, particularly in the Cold War context as weapons that keep the peace, now that Putin is using the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, MAD, as a shield behind which he is conducting a conventional war in Ukraine with impunity while making nuclear threats against NATO to weaken the EU's resolve. Joining us is Stephen Young, Senior Washington Representative in the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where he focuses on reducing the threat of nuclear war. Previously, he was Deputy Director of the Coalition to Reduce Nuclear Dangers, a senior analyst at the British American Security Information Council, and was a fellow in the State Department's Bureau of Human Rights. We will discuss his article at Politico, The Age of Predatory Nuclear Weapon States Has Arrived. Then finally, we'll look into the youthful revolt underway in Iran, where young junior high and high school girls are defying and mocking the regime's many layers of brutal religious-based repression, as a societal shift is underway against a hypocritical and hated clerical kleptocracy. Joining us is Asal Rad, Research Director of the National Iranian American Council. She has written for Newsweek, The Independent, Foreign Policy, and appeared on BBC World, BBC Persian, Al Jazeera, and NPR, and is the author of The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising, relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/slash/donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org, where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as five dollars a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is John Hoffman, a PhD candidate at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. His work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cypher Brief, and Foreign Policy magazine. And he has an article of the National Interest, the Abraham Accords, and the imposed Middle East order. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Hoffman.
1: Well, thank you for having me today, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, John. And uh, OPEC+, Plus, which is largely Saudi Arabia and Russia, have agreed to deep cuts in oil production, which will mean that the price of gasoline will go up just before an election, which, of course, is the last thing that... Biden and the Democrats need, it doesn't seem to me to be accidental. I think we know that Mohammed bin Salman admires Putin, and if not, sees him as a kind of role model. And we know that uh, Putin hates Biden, and he wants more money to finance his war against Ukraine. And it looks as if they've done a deal here. What's your reading on it?
1: No, absolutely. I think everything you said is, is spot on. I think that doing this so close to the election is not only a deliberate move, but I think also the timing of this amidst declining oil prices and Saudi Arabia wanting higher oil prices to build its ambitious new cities and things like that, and and Putin now getting you know further mirrored within the uh, disastrous invasion of Ukraine. I think this is all... Uh, very deliberate move. And and like you noted, Putin and MBS would love nothing more than to have Donald Trump or another like-minded Republican in back in the White House.
0: Well, and of course, we know that if the Republicans take the House in November, they will stop America's military aid to Ukraine, in effect, helping Putin. So they become Putin's party as well. It's not just Trump. Putinism is taking over at least one of the two parties in this country. It's interesting to note that three days before Trump took office, President Obama was talking with reporters off the record, and he said, quoting Obama, what I worry about most is there's a war right now of ideas, more than any hot war, and it's between Putinism, which, by the way, is subscribed to at some level by Turkey's Erdogan, Netanyahu, Philippines, Duterte, and former Donald Trump, and a vision of liberal market-based democracy that has all kinds of flaws but is subject to all kinds of legitimate criticism, but on the other hand is sort of responsible for most of the human progress we've seen over the last 50 to 75 years, he told reporters in and off the record comments first published by Bloomberg. So that's a pretty accurate vision of the world, is it not? That this is a struggle between autocracy and democracy, and the autocrats may be on their back heels to some extent in Russia and certainly in in Iran, but not so in Saudi Arabia.
1: Exactly, and I think what, there's a lot of credence to that framework that you just described. It's it's unfortunate that in this struggle between this kind of authoritarian ethos and a more democratic oriented ethos. The United States continues to wholeheartedly support autocrats within the Middle East. So it it kind of, it it damages its own rhetoric and its own image in this kind of effort to combat authoritarianism in this Putin uh, mindset, like you just described. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, all of these countries remain staunchly aligned with the United States and the United States continues to pour money into these countries and weapons into these countries, despite these countries not having our interests in mind. I mean, look at Saudi Arabia and oil. just This is just the most recent and blatant example.
0: Well, what happened with the fist bump then? I mean, it was was Biden somehow deluded into thinking he can make a deal with this little entitled little creep who's a psychopath and clearly admires uh, Putin, if not sees him as his role model.
1: Yes, I think the entire trip, the the entire logic behind the trip was misguided. The individuals surrounding Biden on his Middle East team, whether it be Jake Sullivan or Brett McGurk or any of these individuals, they're, they're known for embracing tried and true U.S. policy in the Middle East that seeks to stabilize U.S. policies and root them in uh, this myth of authoritarian stability, this idea that autocrats in the Middle East are the best ones to advance our interests. Biden's trip to the Middle East was really nothing more than a culmination of decades of, of failed U.S. policies, whereby we think that somehow these actors will, you know, align with our interests and 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 it advance our strategic imperatives at and it it, it, it's just sad it's 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 just frankly sad to see that not only was the trip so misguided but the trip is the culmination of decades of structural problems
0: it's pretty clear that mbs is poised to become the king and they they're sort of setting the table for that at the moment in saudi arabia and uh, again he and putin got together Dominating OPEC, and they're, they're reducing the supplies two million barrels a day in order to run up the price of gas, which will be very, very damaging to Biden and to the Democrats in just what one month before the election. Here in California, by the way, we have a similar form of extortion going on with the the cartel that's five refiners who control all of 97 percent of the supply of gasoline here in the state of California. It turns out they make more money by shutting down their refineries than by supplying the product that they're supposed to supply, which is a sort of an anomaly in capitalism. You make more money by producing less. But that seems to also be applied to OPEC in a broader sense, is it not?
1: No, absolutely. And I think think that there are two main pillars to this strategy that they're undertaking. The first, like you said, is... In effort to undermine not only the Democratic Party, but Joe Biden, the Saudis and uh, Putin, you know, have have made clear that they prefer Donald Trump. They've kept their ties with the Trump team for, you know, despite them not being in the White House, such as the two billion dollars put into Jared Kushner's investment fund and the whole Trump Saudi Gulf tournament that that happened a couple months back i think that the reason why they're so aligned is because this authoritarian mindset that mohammed bin salman has that putin has is ultimately the same mindset that trump has you know these individuals represent what trump ultimately <laughs> wanted to be but you know thankfully we have restraints on uh, the presidency here in the united states so he wasn't able to become that but Ultimately, in my opinion, they represent what Donald Trump strives to be. And the second pillar that I think this strategy is rooted in is, you know, Putin sees things are not going well in Ukraine and he sees that things are escalating. Declining gas prices certainly aren't in his strategic interest because he needs money to fuel this, uh, not only fuel his war in Ukraine, but to fuel his domestic repression at home. And Mohammed bin Salman, likewise, needs this money in many ways because of these ambitious new projects that Saudi Arabia has trotted out to enact. And I I think this is really just a two-sided policy here, one to undermine domestic politics of the United States and the other to advance their own strategic interests.
0: So is there anything that the Biden administration can do here, apart from be victims of this Price manipulation by Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin, as I mentioned earlier, I can't imagine the Republican Party is also on board. They're perfectly happy to have the price of gas, you know, as an albatross around uh, Biden's neck, because it's pretty clear that the American people don't like paying high prices for gas. No, little wonder why. Uh, so they're not going to be that sophisticated in their thinking when they go to the gas pump and get gouged. They'll blame Biden and the Democrats, won't they?
1: No, absolutely. if If I was Biden and if I was sitting back and looking at all of this, first off, I would fire my advisors because <laughs> and it, the, the people directing u s Middle East policy are just rooted in this old school thinking that somehow these autocrats are the best way to advance our interests and time after time again it's shown that this is not the case so first i would get rid of everybody surrounding me who is advising me on middle east policy Mm. but second i would also recognize the great deal of leverage here that the united states has over saudi arabia the saudi arabian military Functions only because of the United States, you know, it's it's this weird, you know, disproportionate power dichotomy that the United States is the one here who's being manipulated when the United States actually holds all of the cards. It's 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 a really strange dynamic.
0: So specifically, though, what could the U.S. do to put pressure on MBS?
1: I mean, if if it were if it were me in the White House, the first thing that I would say is, okay, if you're you know going to cut oil production, uh, maybe the United States will go ahead and ground the Saudi air force, you know, for starters. You know, th- th- maybe the United States will go ahead and withdraw troops from Saudi Arabia who are still stationed over there. You know, it, it it's 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 quite crazy to think that the United States has this much invested in Saudi Arabia. And does not recognize that it can use these uh, investments to its own advantage?
0: Yeah, but why would you want to help Iran at the very moment where it's possible that the Iranian people who live under this horrible religious oppression and this kleptocracy of these uh, uh, ayatollahs and robes who are just a, a bunch of oligarchs and kleptocrats, the people look like they're maybe poised to get rid of them. So, you know, why help Iran out at this particular moment when that noxious leadership in Iran is vulnerable?
1: So I don't see that doing these things and pressuring Saudi Arabia would necessarily help Iran. I think what's happening in Iran is, is you know, a, a primarily domestic issue, and it's the same structural flaws that are t- that exist within Iran, exist within Saudi Arabia and Egypt and and the UAE, you know, it's it's this just complete sidelining of popular opinion in the masses. But I think that if the United States were to push back on Saudi Arabia, I I I personally don't see that as a way of advancing Iran's position. I think it would honestly plague into the United States demonstrating their strength in the region. You know, America knows what its interests are in the region. We know that we hold the cards here. We hold the leverage. And we recognize that our allies, quote-unquote allies, can be just as problematic as our adversaries such as Iran.
0: Well, something has to happen, right? Because the price of gas goes up uh, just before the, an election and all of the gains that the Democrats seem to be having uh, with The Supreme Court's abortion ruling apparently mobilizing a lot of women to vote. All of that could be wiped out by this simple move by these two buddies, Vladimir Putin and Mohammed bin Salman.
1: Yes, I, I think the Biden administration really needs to listen to people like Representative Rohana or Senator Chris Murphy, who are – especially Senator Chris Murphy put out an article this morning calling for a fundamental reassessment of U.S.-Saudi ties. I think there's a growing base of popularity within the Democratic Party that wants to challenge these Middle East autocrats, recognize that we they do not share our interests, And that is the best way to maintain domestic support at home. The worst thing Biden could do is to keep throwing money at them, especially as gas prices are likely going to skyrocket. You know, we need a fundamental reassessment in Washington.
0: So is that a polite way of saying, uh, John, that the U.S. has the leverage to conduct a coup to get rid of this, this psychotic little punk? I don't – I wouldn't say leverage to conduct a coup, but I would say leverage
1: to recognize that Saudi Arabia does not share our strategic interests, whether it be in the Middle East or broader global geopolitics. I think this is, if nothing else, a wake-up call for the United States to go ahead and say, okay, we need to fundamentally reassess who our partners are, and if that means kicking some of them to the curb, then so be it.
0: Well, John Hoffman, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it.
1: Of course, Ian. Thank you for having me on.
0: And again, I've been speaking with John Hoffman, who's a PhD candidate at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. His work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cypher Brief, and Foreign Policy magazine. And he has an article at the National Interest, The Abraham Accords Are the Imposed Middle East Order. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the outmoded doctrine of mutually assured destruction, MAD, which Putin is using as a shield behind which he's conducting a conventional war in Ukraine with impunity while making nuclear threats against NATO to weaken the EU's resolve. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Young, the Senior Washington Representative in the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where he focuses on reducing the threat of nuclear war. Previously, he was Deputy Director of the Coalition to Reduce Nuclear Dangers, a Senior Analyst at the British American Security Information Council, and was a Fellow in the State Department's Bureau of Human Rights. And he has an article at Politico the Asia-predatory nuclear weapon states has arrived. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen
2: Young. I wish we were very glad to be here. But I'm I'm happy to be here, but not happy to be here. I
0: I get what you're saying. And we had, of course, mutually assured destruction throughout the 50-year-long Cold War. We had a Cold War simply because we couldn't afford to have a hot war. Both sides, the Soviet Union and the United States, not only had first-strike capability, they had second-strike capability that ensured mutually assured destruction, but now you have this paradox where one nuclear-armed country is undertaking a conventional war, in effect using the threat of mutually assured destruction as a cover to enable it to attack and to some extent destroy Ukraine. And I suppose in a way the same could apply to China if they decided to attack Taiwan Again, mutually assured destruction would prevent the United States and China from going into a nuclear war, but it would enable China to go under that threshold. So this seems to be the new normal. Well, we certainly hope it's not the new normal,
2: but it could certainly be. And the reality is that, yes, as you described, Russia is basically using nuclear weapons as a shield while it attacks Ukraine with conventional weapons. And clearly, in my mind, is a phenomenon we, sh- we just can't live in a world with it where that works so readily, where nuclear deterrence is used to not keep a country safe, but to allow it to conduct a conventional war against a, a neighboring state. It is uh, a terrifying phenomenon that, in my mind, should cause us to rethink uh, relying on nuclear weapons for security going
0: forward. In a, but Putin is already up in the ante, even beyond what we're discussing, which is he, he using the nuclear arsenals of the U.S. and Russia as a shield to pursue a conventional war. But he's also threatening the use of nuclear weapons. So what is that strategy, do you think? Why is he pushing the envelope since he's, he's actually getting away with murder? Well,
2: yeah, and sadly, it is working. This is the challenge we have of nuclear deterrence. It's been around, you said, for decades but we're in a world now where it's being used entirely for evil rather than for security and safety. It's being used for purposes uh, of sabotage, annexation, takeover, takeover of neighboring countries. It, it is a phenomena that has long been possible but rarely seen and one we should try and to move away from if we possibly can. I think the, the reality is that it's all too possible if if Putin keeps losing this war, he actually could go nuclear, and that would be a catastrophe. But even if he doesn't, uh, we can't live in a world where this is possible, in my mind. I think we need to focus on uh, a, a world where we no longer rely on MAD or mutual destruction for our security. It's simply a reality we should try and escape from if we possibly
0: can. Well, I'd like to explore that further, but just to touch on the current Tensions. Russia's ambassador to the United States is warning that military aid that Biden has just offered to Ukraine, more of these high mass missile systems and others, artillery, etc. That uh, aid to military aid to Ukraine, quote, increases the danger of direct military clash. So, <laughs> on top of getting away with what they're doing, I guess the Russians are trying to threaten America not to even help Ukraine out with conventional weapons. Their propagandists say that this is not a war with Ukraine, this is a war with America and NATO. So if, for example, Putin did fire a tactical nuclear weapon, or more than one, into Ukraine, that's not NATO territory and it's not US territory. So what can the US or NATO do under those conditions?
2: So you're outlining sort of the nightmare scenario that I'm most afraid of that, that Putin will keep losing in Ukraine and decide that he needs to have, make it change that makes needs to make the facts on the ground change and he' would try to do that by as you said doing maybe just one strike in Ukraine or maybe even near Ukraine over the Black Sea and warn if the West NATO doesn't stop arming Ukraine those attacks will escalate and he'll start, he'll start destroying uh, Ukrainian, Ukrainian cities and that's a terrible the for, the for the West to be in. My belief is we can't uh, heed to that blackmail because we can't allow Putin to win, but we need to respond in ways that won't lead him to escalate more. I think the first response should be diplomatic and tell Russia, uh, tell China and India, who have today given lukewarm support to Russia, now is the end, it has to stop. We have to be united in opposing Russia once they break on that taboo of nuclear use that's been around for 77 years. I think it's quite possible, actually. That if Putin goes nuclear, the support China and India have been giving has already been waning, and that would, I think, end it. I certainly hope that's to be the case. And so we could we could uh, make Russia a true pariah state, um, but we certainly can't stop supporting Ukraine if that happens either, because that would have Russia winning. Uh, and so I think we need to balance have a balanced reaction to the Russia's attack. They wouldn't involve direct attacks on NATO, which are direct attacks on Russia but it could have involved U.S. and NATO attacks on Russian forces in Ukraine, perhaps, or maybe just, even just keeping going with what we're doing with Ra- Ukraine and arming them in, even further might be the option to do. But yes, it is, it's a terrifying scenario to think about and one that's all too possible.
0: So does this mean that the only place where we can possibly work to stop this situation from getting out of control is the United Nations Security Council, which comprises, of course, the nuclear-armed countries of China, France, Russia, UK, and the United States. And each member, of course, has veto power, and that's been paralyzing the uh, Security Council for some time. And Russia was recently condemned, and they vetoed, obviously, that resolution. China does it as well. They usually help each other out. I mean, do you think that there is secret diplomacy going on between Biden and Xi Jinping at the moment? The the theory is that if anybody if there's anybody on the planet that Putin might listen to, it would be Xi Jinping. Right. I'm not sure it's at the highest levels, but I'm quite
2: sure that, yes, the U.S. is strongly encouraging China to um, push back against Russia and tell Russia this is a step they cannot possibly take. And if they do, there'll be severe consequences for doing so. And, And as you said, because the UN Security Council has a veto principle, I'm not sure how much that would do. I think the more straightforward option is just for their sanctions and have... China, India, and Europe simply stop importing Russian oil and basically bankrupt the Russian economy. They're already under some stress, but not doing that terribly because they are still getting oil sales to the West and to China and India. If those all stopped, Russia would be under a lot more stress than it's been in the past. The economy really would go into free fall. And that would be a challenge Putin would not want to face.
0: Well, Putin runs a mafia state and isn't what's happening then, you know, you, could you describe these as mafia tactics? They're basically trying to break up the resolve of NATO and the and the EU essentially by threatening, I mean, what was the purpose about blowing up the uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2 uh, pipelines except to basically threaten the Europeans that things are going to get worse and if you don't back down you're going to suffer. I mean, that's pure mafia thuggery, isn't it? Very much so, and it, it seems clear
2: from what we know that seems Russia actually did do it. That's not not my expertise, but it seems quite possible they did, and it is terrifying to think about how far will Russia go in this situation of of mafia and and threats uh, and actually actions that are quite. Dangerous. I mean, the, the gas leak is apparently just a di- nightmare on climate change purposes for in terms, of, in terms of global warming gases. And yes, we don't know how far Putin will go. mean, no one. most folks thought he wouldn't invade Ukraine. He did that, obviously. Most folks thinks he thinks he won't go nuclear and he probably won't. But if he does, we certainly can't rule it out. And so, uh, yeah, we are in a very bad situation. And one, as I said, I think we need to be m- trying to move away from. The reality is that as long as countries have nuclear weapons, this can keep going on. And the other second reality is we can't destroy a country that has nuclear weapons. That's, what that's the as you said, the whole point of MAD. So we're in a real bind as long as the world has nuclear armed states. And clearly, the, we can argue that those nuclear armed states have stopped massive wars like World War I, World War II. And there's some truth to that. But I think there are alternatives we could shoot pursuing. Mm. In the future, where we can have a world without nuclear weapons and without global conflict of the conventional kind, uh, but that will take some time to happen. So it's a, clearly a long range process. Uh, in the meantime, I think there are steps that the US could be taking to try and encourage uh, Russia to do the right thing, including international pressure, but also to do the right thing itself. The President Biden should, for example, say, I am ending my sole authority to conduct a nuclear first strike. I'll require any nuclear order I give to be confirmed by the vice president and the speaker of the house. So we get a sense that it's not just one person, be it Biden or Putin or Trump, who has the control of nuclear arsenals. That's what happens, right that's what it is right now. I think the president should be taking the lead and saying, okay, I'm gonna end that system. I'm gonna try and show the world there are better ways to do this than what we have right now, because it's not necessary. It's a risk we shouldn't be taking.
0: Well, apparently in Russia, Putin shares the authority to launch nuclear weapons with his defense minister Shoigu and the head of the military, Grasimov. But what Russia represents today is an anomaly in geopolitics, which is a combination of organized crime and national security, nuclear weapons and the mafia. So what kind of assurances do we have about command and control? Or is in Russia, or is there a possibility that there are sober, professional military officers in uh, Russia somewhere that can, uh, you know, remove uh, Putin? I don't know whether you recall during the Cold War, but the worst part of the Cold War in 1983, in October of 1983, the Russian crocus and Kazba early warning system picked up what they thought were five. Minuteman missiles heading towards Russia. They turned out to be an anomaly of light reflecting off clouds. And the Soviet launch officer, who who was in charge of, you know, essentially allowing an automatic response of of a huge first strike, overrode that system because he figured that if the Americans were going to hit us, they wouldn't hit us with only five Minuteman missiles. Now, this guy got fired, Colonel Petrov but he did save the world. So he's an example of what one hopes exists in Russia today. Is that a vain hope on my part?
2: Well, it's. I hope it's not a vain hope. I don't have... It's hard to say, though. I mean, basically, the reality is that the Russian and U.S. systems are um, under military control, and and we certainly can hope that people will do the right thing in the right situation. But it's also true that... Um, the, if the military commanders can be fired, they don't do what the, what the leader of the country wants. I mean, as as been widely reported, after January 6th, the head of the U.S. military sought to tell his um, nuclear forces that if Trump orders nuclear strike, tell me first and don't obey it. But that was just his request. That's not how the protocol actually works. So there, it wasn't just the Russia that's have instances where the military worries about what the commander might do. It's sadly too common. Uh, and I think it's an issue where we should be Uh, in both Russia and the U.S., trying to ensure the system has more controls in place than it currently has.
0: So we talked earlier about the assumption that Biden is trying to get Xi Jinping to talk sense to Putin and to stop this nuclear saber rattling and escalating the threat of nuclear war. But on the other hand, the same conditions that Putin is taking advantage of, the mutually assured destruction between the U.S. and the Russia in terms of the what at least six thousand warheads each is that also could apply to China right in terms of uh, it could try to grab Taiwan with conventional force using its nuclear umbrella as a a threat against the United States not to uh, come to the aid of Taiwan. I mean that's normally possible
2: I don't worry about that very much I don't think it's a I don't think it's a real likelihood. I mean, the the truth is that China has a far smaller nuclear arsenal than the United States does. They only have about 200 weapons total, which only less than 100 can currently reach the US. They're um, reportedly on a path to expand that maybe double or double, double, even triple the size over the next decade. But even so, they'll still have far smaller nuclear arsenal than the US does. Um, I think the real question for China is um, how that they don't want to have a war with Taiwan. That's not their desire. They want to have Taiwan be part of China, but without having it, doing it through combat. Um, They only, I think the risk of combat becomes much more real if the US is offering military support to Taiwan. That's a risk that we should um, not take. That's a problem where President Biden has said the US will, will aid Taiwan, and that actually is counter to US policy. Uh, over the many decades now, because the U.S. does acknowledge that China, there is only one China, um, and that is um, the China led by Xi Jinping and, and Beijing.
0: So let's just, in the last uh, few minutes here, Stephen Young, talk about what you were suggesting. There, there. There's a possible regime. It may not happen now because things are so tense and they seem to be spinning out of control as Putin loses, even though he's annexed these territories in Ukraine, he's losing the ground that he's already claiming. Plus, he's also being driven by the hawks on media and in Russia's essentially right-wing politics with nationalists and uh, military bloggers and talking heads on television who are absolutely bloodthirsty. So we know the direction he's getting pushed in, but what about the possibility of a regime where it's recognized that simply nuclear weapons have to be abolished altogether? Right.
2: I think that has to be our goal now. I think it's clearly shown, the Ukraine crisis has shown better than ever before that the risk of nuclear annihilation is just too high and we, we can no longer live in this world indefinitely and that we have managed to survive for the last um, 70 years through luck uh, as much as anything else. I think that's not a world I want to live in. And I think we do need to to move away from it. We do need to solve the current crisis first. Russia Ukraine needs to be resolved, hopefully, Russia losing gracefully, as it were, which is clearly not going to happen easily. But once it does happen, we need to start turning to a world in which uh, the U.S. leads the world away from nuclear deterrence. Because the U.S. does not need nuclear weapons for security. Uh, It only has them to deter others from using nuclear weapons against it. Uh, I think in a world without nuclear weapons, the U.S. would be able to lead NATO and hopefully much of the rest of the world uh, into a system that is more equitable, that does um, build on what's called common security, and the U.N. is attempt at that. But it certainly, as you said, it's bound by its way it was set up, where it gave the nuclear weapons states to veto power over the U.N. Security Council. That needs to be changed in the long run. But even that is a heavy lift. And so we're not talking about in the next year or next five years. This is, this is a 10, 20-year project, but the times we're working on it is now. We can't uh, postpone any longer. The threat is simply too too great.
0: Well, Stephen Young, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Young, who's a senior Washington representative in the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where he focuses on reducing the threat of nuclear war. Previously, he was deputy director of the Coalition to Reduce Nuclear Dangers, a senior analyst at the British American Security Information Council, and was a fellow in the State Department's Bureau of Human Rights. And he has an article at Politico, The Age of Predatory Nuclear Weapon States Has Arrived. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the youthful revolt underway in Iran, where young junior high and high school girls are defying and mocking the regime's many layers of brutal religious-based repression as a societal shift is underway against a hypocritical and hated clerical kleptocracy. Mother,
3: do you think they'll drop the bomb? Mother, do you think they'll like this song?
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Asal Rad, who is the Research Director at the National Iranian-American Council. She has written for Newsweek, The Independent, Foreign Policy, and appeared on BBC World, BBC Persian, Al Jazeera, and NPR, and is the author of The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. Welcome to Background Briefing, Asal Rad. Thank Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And and the protests continue and the bravery of the young women leading them is just extraordinary. And particularly when you see video clips of young schoolgirls heckling a Basij paramilitary leader who was obviously trying to address them, Um, they were saying, get lost, Basiji!" For the longest time, I assume, in terms of this clerical regime, which is basically a mafia plutocrats dressed in robes, I take it the emperor has no clothes in that regard. But has it reached the point now where the people no longer fear the Basij and the morality police? I think what you're seeing is
4: a population, a youth population that's sort of come of age um, and hasn't really participated in previous protests. I mean, a lot of the, the people, these schoolgirls that you're seeing, they're, you know, they're In their mid-teens. So, you know, they were just, if you look back to protests in 2009, which is probably the last uh, large scale protests like this that we've seen in Iran that go to the core of the system and that include, um, that cut across, you know, class, gender, uh, age, um, they were just kids. You know, they they could not have participated in those. And even if you go back to 2017, 18 and 19, the nature of those protests were a bit different and they were still fairly young. So what I think you're seeing is a generation. I mean, over 40 percent of Iran's population is under the age of 24 years old and under. And so the shift in many ways can be attributed to that. And those are the people that you see really not having that fear um, in part because I think they are very far removed from the history of the revolution, uh, the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s, which shaped the lives of the post-revolutionary uh, generation, the generation that really tried to, uh, in many ways, engage with the system, um, you know, participate in elections uh, and reform the system from within. Now you have this newer generation, Gen Z, who doesn't have that background in history, and um, they're really demanding. Something much more basic. They're demanding their rights, and the system that they currently have uh, is built in a way to deny those rights.
0: But I think we still are deferential to these people, like the Supreme Leader, and apparently his son, uh, Mushtaba, basically runs the country, and he's high up in the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Is that a problem that we basically are too deferential and we don't frame the this leadership cadre as a basically clerical parasites, that uh, it, this is a form of kind of mafia, and that they use religious piety as a weapon of oppression?
4: Well, they certainly use, you know, one of the things to keep in mind when you look at these protests is they're not, they should not be perceived, at least not yet. We haven't seen um, protest slogans that are, for instance, anti-Islam or anti-religion, but they are, anti-A system that uses religion in the way that the Iranian state has done so. Um, And so that's why you actually have uh, women who are more conservative in terms of how they choose their attire, women in Chador's women who do cover themselves, who are coming out in favor of these protests, who are supporting women um, having the autonomy to choose, and who are against compulsory hijab. There are... um, Members within the clerical, within you know the clerical establishment is not just uh, the clerics that are part of the government, but clerics that you know focus on their actual clerical uh, work and aren't part of the government. And there are within the clerical body there are people who object to the compulsory hijab. So I think in, in trying to to understand the different, to differentiate between us between the religion as an institution itself and a state that uses or appropriates that religion for, uh, in order to control its population, right? So the control that the Islamic Republic, that the Iranian authorities try to impose on their population goes beyond just you know, the attire of, of women. They also uh, impose restrictions on men's attire, but obviously the restrictions are much more harsh on women. Um, but control, if you look at the fact that they uh, censor the Internet, that they try to shut down the Internet, there's so there's other layers of control, censorship in film, censorship in music. Uh, the fact that women cannot uh, sing by themselves in public, there's so many levels to that control that it's more about that than any kind of sort of, uh, re- any sort of religiosity. And I think that's something to keep in mind.
0: But is there an understanding, or, or at least a rebellion against the hypocrisy of this regime that cloaks itself in clerical legitimacy, but is deeply hypocritical. I mean, you have, you know, sons of some of the uh, revolutionary leaders and the leaders in this government, you know, living in mansions in Beverly Hills and living the high life across Europe.
4: Absolutely. I think uh, hypocrisy is uh, at the center of of the grievances that Iranians have um, across the board, right? It's it's not it's the there's so many layers to that as well. So many layers of of sort of hypocrisy that that we can look at. And just I mean, you mentioned earlier, al Khamenei, the son of the current supreme leader. Uh, there's you know uh, analysts and and rumors that go around saying that you know there's already sort of been a decision made that, and we don't know this of course, but I'm saying in terms of the the analysis that we've heard that might put Mochtavo as um, the next in line uh, to succeed his father as a supreme leader. I mean, how's that different than monarchy? So if you want to talk about hypocrisy, the, even the idea of entertaining a hereditary lineage for a position like a supreme leadership um, flies in the face of the entire purpose of the revolution in 1979, which was to topple that very type of system, uh, which was seen in a monarchy. So I think there's absolutely uh, frustration with the hypocrisy, frustration with uh, corruption and mismanagement that impacts the daily lives of Iranians on, on so many levels, from their livelihood to their political and social freedoms.
0: But Mushtabar of course, has no religious credentials, and uh, many his father, who apparently suffer, suffers from bouts of depression and has had prostate cancer, He may have some religious legitimacy, but what about the Grand Ayatollah? Is there a possibility that the religious hypocrisy of this uh, brutal leadership could be exposed by more legitimate religious leaders?
4: Well, I think what, if we're looking at what protesters are saying and and what has been um, a stance within at least a large portion, arguably a majority of the Iranian populace, is a state that's not tied to religion, right? Like um, the the fact that, I mean, in terms of Mochtabo's credentials, uh, Khomeini himself didn't have the, you know, quote, proper credentials to take on the role of supreme leader after the death of um, the only other supreme leader, the uh, founder, basically, of the Islamic Republic, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. And the constitution of Iran was amended in in order to allow someone with the lack of credentials that Khamenei had to take that mantle. So in that sense, you know, we've already seen um, how this role has been changed to fit the political agenda of the time, right? Less so than the credentials that go with the the religious credentials, at least. Um, So I don't... Unfortunately, that doesn't seem like an impediment to putting someone like Mochitaba in that role simply because um, it it isn't based on a system of credentials, right? It's based more on political maneuvering within the country. Um, But I think that you're looking at a population that doesn't want to have a religious establishment, especially one that is authoritarian, Uh, overlay what should be a process of democratization that was uh, put into place in 1979. I mean, if you look at the Iranian Constitution, uh, what was originally drafted in early 1979 after the revolution, it looks much more like the Constitution of the French Fifth Republic. You have separation of powers, you have elections, you have uh, a legislative body, judiciary body and executive branch. So you have what is the structure of a democracy, but then by the end of that year, the actual constitution that is ratified introduces this idea of society, right, and that is where you get the supreme leadership, this unelected body that has ultimate control over everything, and that's precisely when when protesters are saying death to the dictator, when they're going at the core of the system, it is that part of the system that they are talking about
0: And of course the dictator has the tools of repression uh, the morality police, the prestige, the revolutionary guard corps, the pastoran there's questions of whether, how much the military are on side, but many has already blamed it all on Israel and the Americans, which I imagine is a pretty tired mantra, and he's using absolutely brutal repression, uh, particularly in, the, in the, the Sharif University of Technology, Tehran, horrible beatings of students, etc., disappearing people. So, in terms of where this is heading, are, you know, labor unions, and I know teachers joined earlier on. The religious holidays are over now. What's your sense of whether or not the mechanisms of oppression in that state, could they get exhausted? Could there be so many young people that they could just simply overwhelm this oppressive religious apparatus?
4: Well, the the state has clearly shown that it is uh, very willing to use you know, deadly force, mass arrests, um, shutting down the internet, all sorts of violence and intimidation, um, to crush these protests as they have in the past, as as every other protest movement um, in Iran has been crushed in the past, um, in order to sustain itself, right? In order to ensure its own survival. Um, but can that be, and, and of course we have to consider the fact that as of right now, the, the state has a monopoly on violence. Um, they, as you said, there is, you know, multiple branches of the military. One thing to keep in mind is, you know, the, the IRGC, um, is a branch within the military apparatus of the state, but of course the traditional military, um, you, if you, even if you have sort of defections from, from those ranks, which we've actually seen, we've seen some. Um, members of the military uh, public, publicly posting videos in support of the people of the nation. I mean, essentially, that is their their creed is to is to protect the nation and its people. Um, but the IRGC is very much tied. I mean, its its reason to exist is to protect the revolution and the supreme leadership. Right. So so as long as those forces continue to stay loyal to the supreme leader, If they do, all of these things can change on the ground, right? And it's hard to predict because the nature of these situations is unpredictable. But in terms of various possibilities, I mean, really everything is a possibility. Um, Change is not something that I think states can just deny uh, through sheer force. And if anything, I think the amount of suppression that you're seeing is is a sign of weakness. It is a sign of weakness that you, when you do not have a populace that actually supports what you do. Now, the the sort of um, supreme leadership and the establishment within the Islamic Republic, the state has some support within within the Iranian population, right? I don't want to dismiss that because we want to have a clear picture of what's going on. They have a, uh, a base of support, though that constitutes a minority. Um, but in order for... Fundamental change to happen, whether you want to call it you know reform, whether you want to call it a revolution. I mean, this is a this seems to be a social movement. It seems to be a watershed moment, and I don't think that we can go back to a certain status quo, even if in the short term, even if the state can um, use the brute force that it's used in the past, to suppress protests again, that doesn't mean that the movement goes away. And I think that's a key thing to consider. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of sort of emotion right now in looking at the situation and, and people think that some, you know, there the the hope that this will change the system with the least amount of, you know, bloodshed uh, for civilians in the country, while That is obviously something that we would like to see overnight. It's not necessarily what we will see. But the point that I'm trying to make is even if these protests are suppressed, the social movement behind them, especially when it's being led by Iran's youth, I don't think that can, that won't go away. Um, And it hasn't. That's the other thing to contextualize here is that Iranians as as a nation have been struggling for you know freedom and democracy these basic principles of constitutionalism representative government a government that serves their its people for well over a century um this struggle has continued and it has had multiple iterations and watershed historical moments and i think we're seeing one of those right now
0: well uh, we started out talking about the bravery of these young girls teenagers you know mocking and heckling this the feared uh, Basiji militia, who beat the hell out of them, and you know they used to ride motorcycles through crowds of young protesters in in the Green Revolution, with razor blades slicing people. I mean, they're they're vicious. But the fact that the kids don't fear them anymore would seem to be a breakthrough, or at least an important sea change here. And just in the last minute or so. My understanding is that some of these young protesters are also going to the homes of the IRGC and, and the Basijis and et cetera, and just saying, we know where you live and, you know, talk to the parents and say, you know, try and convince your sons and daughters to stop oppressing the people and join us. Is that going on? Uh,
4: you know, the, the idea of them going to individual houses is something that I have I haven't seen yet myself that doesn't mean it's not happening necessarily but in terms of the 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 fearlessness the the courage the bravery I mean we've said we've said this over and over but it can't be overstated these are um I mean in some cases really just kids who are standing up in defiance uh, of a system that has that has controlled an entire generation and they're sort of saying you know it stops here and uh, just as an anecdote one of the there's a slogan that has been used in these protests and has been used in past protests in Iran as well, uh, which is, don't be afraid, we are all together. And in a recent clip, we saw that slogan be sort of inversed, where they're saying to the security forces, be afraid, be afraid, because we're all together. So it is, it is fascinating to see the way that um, this that sort of fearlessness that you're talking about, um, in the face of knowing, I mean, they, they, they absolutely know that they are facing, uh, violence that they have, you know, there've been people who, um, have been killed in these protests. There have been people who were killed, hundreds of people killed in the, uh, 2019 protests in November of 2019. So they know that they are risking their lives, but at the same time, um, still continuing, to protest, and that's the shift we've seen from maybe the earlier days in the wake of the killing of Masa to what we've seen in the last several days, which is more youth-led, more, it's still women-led, but you're seeing a lot of protests at universities and even at grade schools, at, you know, high schools and, uh, you know, like junior high schools, that age range, who are, especially the girls who are shedding their sort of uniforms, which uh, includes a headscarf and just going right after officials themselves, so it's it's really incredible to to watch uh, that kind of courage, especially coming from such young people.:
0: Well, Asal, Rad, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
4: Thank you, Thank you for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Asal Rudd, who's a research director at the National Iranian-American Council. She's written for Newsweek, The Independent, Foreign Policy, and appeared on BBC World, BBC Persian, Al Jazeera, and NPR. And she's the author of The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.